So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, a grand program of environmental discourse, contemporary, cutting-edge, modern, up-to-the-minute discussions on the most important environmental factors that will be impacting your life. I'm Dave, that's Lauren. You're Seth. I am Seth. This is CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps your excellent local community radio station. Stefan is going to interview two individuals. Kyla Hewson and Kristen Pugh from the Pullback Podcast. We're specifically talking about climate denial and all, all, the, all the ways that different people try to deny climate change and the ways you can respond to them. First, we will acknowledge that the U.S. Senate has passed something that's being called a climate bill. I mean, it's called the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. Right, but it's being spoken of as a climate bill. So we're going to talk about that. Stefan is going to interview some people next week about this particular bill. Yeah, so we'll dive in more deeply uh, with an interview uh, next week on this topic, but we, we're, some of our high-level thoughts will be here before we get there. High-level? High-level. These are high-level thoughts? These are the highest-of-level thoughts. Level. <laughs> yeah. The highest of level. The, we're skimming the surface here. These yeah. are like the dumbest of the dumb. I thought you meant it was the cream that had risen to the top. Exactly, yeah. No, no. Oh. This is like when you make pudding at home, it, if you don't oh, stir yeah. it enough, it'll get a skin on the top. This is the skin on top of the pudding. Next week, you'll get the pudding, but this week, all skin, baby. This is all the fat without the flavor. So <clears throat> the U.S. Senate, as uh, discussed, has passed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which includes... There's like $730 billion of spending in the bill, but it includes $369 billion in climate initiatives that are largely incentives for corporations to develop clean energy and electric vehicles. Uh, the bill will also charge companies for methane emissions and expand soil health programs and is expected to bring U.S. emissions reductions by 2030 to 40% below 2005 levels uh, without the bill. I b they would predict that they would be able to reduce uh, their emissions by 27%, uh, 2005 by 2030. Now it will be around 40, perhaps. Uh, the Democratic Party compromised with corporate donors to expand fossil fuel production while also expanding renewables. Uh, the bill includes an agreement to green light the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which has not passed an environmental assessment. Uh, big fossil fuel corporations are pleased with the bill, um, and it will also require more mining to meet the mineral mineral requirements for renewable energy development. So they've also included, I think, a requirement that a certain percentage of the minerals have to be mined in the United States itself. It's yeah. going to produce a bunch of jobs. Yeah. And so, A, I want to point out that, amazingly, this bill actually got passed. And for the two years, I, on this show, have talked about how there might be a climate bill. And the minute I give up, the minute I truly give up is the minute that something actually happens, which 
Honestly, first and foremost, I have to give a huge, huge shout out to all the climate activists in the States who didn't give up. All of the people who who continued to fight even when it was totally dead. Like, there was a huge moment uh, more recently when there was a big sit-in by congressional staffers in, I think it was uh, Schumer's uh, office, after the Build Back Better bill had been seemingly killed, that, you know, to get him to keep negotiating to try to pass something. And so the fact that people didn't give up and actually kept fighting and now we have something is alone a is impressive and deserves of praise to the climate activists who didn't give up. You're making me weepy. That's so nice. It is. They did it. They did something. It's they did something. I mean, that's very cool. Yeah. You know, and they like they did not stop fighting. And that is impressive. Uh, Although I will immediately also note uh, a very good point made by Kate Aronoff um, in an article that she wrote about this bill, which is basically that like, a lot of the people who successfully should be given the credit for getting a bill of this nature passed are also the ones you could argue are the most betrayed by the concessions that are in the bill. You know, that like the fact that they were able to have a 50-50 split Senate pass a climate bill with this much spending is amazing. At the same time, you know the climate justice organizers who have been fight who have been fighting against the pipelines that are not getting approved by this bill or the increased drilling that is improved approved by this bill etc they're not the ones sort of getting the victory here the victory is largely going to clean energy and to a lot of other pro- programs uh, there are again there are some good things in here about for for local communities as well but it's certainly not a climate justice bill. And a lot of the messaging that has, that's come out of it afterwards has been like, okay, well, this is a start, but the next step is to actually pass a Green New Deal that actually gets a lot of the more transformative and, and, and cultural elements uh, passed. Again, not discounting the amazing amount of work that's gone into making this thing happen and keeping it alive and understanding that it is a step forward and any step forward is positive in its own way um but yeah when you think about like how big the build back better bill was supposed to be or even like i don't know i think back to like when bernie was running and his whole thing was like pushing for a green new deal and it was going to be like 16 trillion dollars and how incredible that was that was going to be if it was ever going to come to fruition um what is it this is what did you say 369 billion i i remember 369 because i giggle every time i say it because i'm a child um but uh, but like yeah, that is a far cry. It's a far cry from where we need to be. We all know this, but it's still positive nonetheless. Um, yeah, where where you, in addition to like the pipelines going through, it's like yes, the fact that there's like CCUS tax credits on here. Um, it gives more access to fossil fuel companies for leases on land and water, and there's like those consumer tax breaks is a bummer, especially because we know those concessions were made in order to get mansion and cinema on side. Um, but other than the climate stuff, there's some amazing developments around here around Medicare, um, a $2,000 annual cap on prescriptions for seniors, which $2,000 is still a lot of money to be paying for medicine out of pocket every year. But when you consider that, like, there are some folks with either chronic illness or like really, really brutal, like cancers that are paying 
tens of thousands of dollars in in medical um, in, in in prescription costs a year. This is a this is a huge win. Um, and then like something small that that I saw written about was like seniors will now have insulin capped at thirty five dollars a dose, which is incredible. But again, a bummer when you realize that originally there was a provision in there to extend that thirty five dollar cap to all Americans with private insurance, and that was stripped from the bill by Republicans because I like I can't like I can't comprehend it's it's so evil it's just like a cartoon villain it does not make any sense why would you take away affordable insulin from people the changes the changes that were made in the end of this bill i think goes against the entire idea that we that populism you know is is kind of the problem right now like like obviously there's some deep disturbing roots of parts of the populist nature but like the three changes that were made sort of the last second were was one yes to make sure that that most Americans will still be paying 90 or more dollars for insulin instead of $35 that and then the other two changes was that private equity that owns bill that owns businesses would be carved out of paying the 15% minimum corporate tax rate which gets put in which, which is which is which was a part of added to this bill and that cinema got the that refused to close a loophole that apparently even Trump was trying to close about carried interest rates, which is just basically about how, again, how private equity makes money. And so these are like these three just pers- like they're, they're like 15 people like who are making billions of dollars who would be hurt by these three changes. And yet they're the ones that apparently are strong enough to to change to, to to undo or to to put this bill and change this bill when everything else was aligned like you know they were turning down a whole bunch of other stuff uh, other amendments to make sure this bill is passed but these are the last three changes that managed to squeak through and all of them benefit a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of Americans while hurting everybody else well the private equity yeah. sorry the pri- the private equity uh thing is not is not against how private equity people make money it's about how private equity firms these are hedge fund managers wall street people avoid paying as much taxes as regular people do it's not it's not like it would hurt them it would bring them down it would bring them to the expected tax rate of rate of normal people and that's the carried that's the carried interest loophole that's the loophole yeah. that cinema got got uh, refused to even close partially yeah that being said, the 15% minimum corporate tax is like, again, it's only 15%. Mm-hmm. Jesus H Christ. But mm-hmm. like, it's still, it's still better than nothing. Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, the fact that this bill is being referred to as the IRA consistently amuses me. I think to me, if there's like the, my low key climate feeling about this bill is actually just that it is that the way they're making money back is through a lot of getting money from either big corporations or hedge funds and or, or and things like that. So like the way they're paying for this bill is by actually removing money from the richest Americans, which I think is alone good because we know that that rich Americans per dollar, their dollar spent is dramatically more carbon heavy than than other Americans. So if this is even just pulling wealth out of the richest, and it's not going to do a lot, don't get me wrong, I'm not pretending that they're moving to any sort of socialist utopia here, but anything that moves money from the the really carbon heavy dollars that rich Americans have into average uh, and uh, yeah, into lower income pockets is also a climate and carbon benefit. So 
there's a few things here that are at least beneficial. Um, but yeah, so for for folks who want to know more specifically about what is in the bill and, and what it means, again, we will have an interview next week talking about this, as well as the cap on emissions that Trudeau has proposed for the oil and gas sectors. So if, that, if you want the full pudding, come back next week to hear it. But for right now, I think if you have to go talk to someone outside about this bill, what you can say is there are it is definitely a lot of money for renewable energy. Uh, it is definitely a lot. It will reduce emissions. I think one of the most interesting questions and takes I saw on this is that one of the big questions now will be what will renewable energy do with their newfound power? Like as they become rich enough to be able to be shift policy, will they continue to will they align with corporate interests or will they double down on decarbonation efforts? And I think that is an ultimate question that is not yet uh, determined. And I think a lot of the sort of more uh, climate justice questions, I think, will come down to that. You know, are we able to hold the renewable the renewable industry and the renewable companies to pushing for social change and positive change rather than just taking their own money and, and, and running like any other corporation might? Yeah, that's you. You're 100% right. That's that's kind of where the rubber will hit the road in terms of like larger systemic change, because at the end of the day, if this is still money that's flowing into corporate coffers and shareholder returns, like a corporation is a corporation is a corporation and their priority above all else isn't I'm they their mission statement might say it's saving the world. Their mission statement is making sure that their shareholders make bank. So we, it's it's not like we can let any of these companies off the hook just because they are selling a product that is less toxic than than a, another company might be otherwise. All right, we'll go to a music break and then return with Stefan's interview with the Pullback Podcast with uh, with the f- folks from the Pullback Podcast about contemporary climate denial. So contemporary. Up to the minute, climate <laughs> denial. I want to hear about postmodern climate denial. We'll get that postmodern in. climate denial is like nothing we've tried has ever succeeded, so we can't know anything about what we're doing. Postmodern climate denial sounds like a book title for like a Haymarket or Verso book. That's being released next year. That'd be that'd be a good book of uh, avant-garde poetry for sure. As previewed earlier on the show, I am stoked to be joined by the two co-hosts of the Pullback Podcast, Kyla Hewson and Kristen Pugh. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Amazing. So as a way of introduction, can you let us know why you started the podcast and what it's all about? Sure. Do you want to tackle that, Kyla, or do you want me to? No, you can take that one on. Sure. So I think a lot of people want their everyday choices to match their ethical values, but there are a lot of barriers that make that really difficult to do. And one of those biggest barriers is information. 
So there's a lot of corporate greenwash out there and it can be really difficult to sift through like really technical websites to try to know what is true. Um, and even just taking the example of like ethical labels on consumer products, there are hundreds of different standards that exist and they vary very widely in quality. So there is some information that's out there, but a lot of it tends to be very dry and academic and it's not something that the average person would ever want to read. So that's basically why we started Pullback. We, we wanted to fill that information gap by looking at one ethical consumption issue at a time and offering our take on how listeners can apply that information to their daily lives. So, you know, it could mean talking about ethical labels in the flower industry. It could mean talking about boycotts and what makes them work or not work. It could be talking about forced labor, why it happens, what it looks like, um, or, you know, debating solutions like are eating insects, is that going to actually address the climate crisis? We cover a range of topics related to that. But with each episode, the goal is to give listeners tools to come to their own decisions about what ethical consumption is and what it can look like in their lives. I miss anything, Kyla? <laughs> no, that's a very eloquent way of putting what I would have said not as nicely. <laughs> Amazing. And so I'm curious, you know, given that you have now done, I think it's almost 80 or over 80 episodes. If there's any specific ethical consumption conundrums that you find most difficult to parse out, because I, I mean, my experience of living life is that you're kind of constantly making these trade-offs or trying to figure out what works and, or really, you're, yeah, like we made it, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago about how there are no climate purists. And I feel like there's just no humanity purists right now. You're, you're always making these ethical decisions about what you're going to prioritize over else. And so is there anything specifically that holds on to you in regards to what, yeah, the, the toughest nuts to crack maybe, or the most interesting nuts? Hmm. Kyle, do you want to start this one? Yeah, I think that the way you put that is actually so perfect. It is always a trade-off. There's, It's almost like there's no good choices to be made, at least not easy choices that are also good. You know, the easy choices are always, there's always a trade-off, as you say. And for any listeners who have watched The Good Place, they tackle it so well when later, late in the later seasons, the judge goes to Earth and they're like, oh, I can just live an easy life. And then they go to buy a tomato and it's like, well this was picked by somebody who wasn't paid fairly and it was shipped across the world but I also really just want a sandwich with a tomato in it so what do you, what do, you do right <laughs> for me it's fish the fishing industry is so bad it's it's actually it's appalling it's destroying the planet and I just love fish so much and now I can't eat it without feeling like I'm making a huge trade-off and for a lot of other people that's fashion I think is the big one right now Mm -hmm. It's really hard to dress yourself without, I mean, you could put on a paper bag and maybe that wouldn't hurt anyone, but then you're wearing a paper bag, you know? <laughs> I mean, I bet you that paper bag came from old growth trees. So you're it's probably- It's <laughs> <most> likely. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be, the thing that you said last, Kyla, was going to be one of my conundrums. It's just- how do you engage with ethical consumption without getting overwhelmed? Because it really is impossible to be perfect. I think trying to live within certain values can be really exhausting at times. And it can be like, there are a lot of barriers depending on what your life situation is. So it can be really difficult. Another thing that I think Kyla and I have been confronting recently in the podcast is like 
what are the bounds within which ethical consumption like is actually a good thing, right? And at what point does it start to sort of divert from systemic solutions, which is maybe something we'll talk about when we talk about climate denial a little bit more, but can be a debate, yeah. sure. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, like in, inside the system, outside the system, I feel like there's, you could never stop talking about that actually. I'm hoping to bring on someone in a couple of weeks to talk about the degrowth movement. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that ends up being sort of one of the closest examples of a complete shift that would be, you know, sort of more of outside the system, like changes us entirely rather than the sort of taking things on at their everyday level. But it's something Struggling that I think- to work within. <laughs> yeah, exactly. System. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, and every day you're going out and you're buying a tomato and it's that, trying to make that as ethical as possible has a string of influences that just only trying to focus on the big system changes allows you to sort of end up, you could end up just working, perpetuating the system for as long as it exists without trying to change the system from inside. It's a total balance. I really don't think exactly. it's actually <laughs> one answer yeah, either way. Some forms of ethical consumption can be like, I won't say radical necessarily, but they can be actions that are pushing the system to change. And then there are others that are really just sort of like, allowing the system to reputation launder. And it's really hard to, to discern which one is which. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into clapping out, because that's the bulk of the conversation, I'm just curious if you have any particular things to look out for or like suggestions you have for folks who are, you know, parsing this world. Is there something like, if these things are true, then probably it is more of the, you know, of the real systems change kind of internal structure work or if these things are true, it might be more greenwashing. Do you have like some principles that you think through or use? If you're engaging with other people to pressure lawmakers or to start grassroots organizations to make change, then that's really the best way to go. And I'm sure you'll talk about that in your degrowth episode. But anything beyond that, if you're just going to a store and buying something, you're working within the system and it's not taking it down. And yes, there are ways to, like if I'm buying something that was made by a company that is doing their best, then we are pushing the market in a direction that we do want it to go. But ultimately, the climate crisis is so terrible at this point that the way that we shop isn't going to solve it quickly enough. I would add to that that Trying to shop ethically, whether that's sort of using environmentally, environmental labels when you're shopping or finding companies that are really trying, that can be a really good thing to do, but it's just a starting point, right? So ethical consumption is about that. And it's also about resource stewardship. So, you know, diverting as much waste as you can, but it's also about being an active citizen in all communities that you participated in your life. So just shopping for something that markets itself as warm and fuzzy, that's not enough. You have to show up in other ways too. Yeah, we, we definitely cannot shop our way out of the climate crisis. <laughs> a guarantee. So to pivot towards climate denial, I'm curious, you focus most, so much on ethical consumption, things like that. What made you interested in climate denial specifically? I mean, I think for me at least, we have covered a lot of different environmental topics and we try to look at sort of the structural problems that lead to those like end consumer ethical dilemmas. You know, why is it that it's so complicated to buy a tomato that's not evil? We sort of look at the causes behind that. 
And so the climate crisis is something that we have talked about in several episodes. And climate denial is just, I think, the most annoying uh, part of being involved in climate action on like a day-to-day basis. So we wanted to sort of give people tools to try to combat those common narratives that they might confront. Sweet. It's, it's really interesting with climate denial because there's so many different forms that it can take. So when Kristen and I sat down and put together our two-part episode on this, to hear all of the different tactics laid out in one place, it just felt like so obvious. I was like, oh yeah, of course I know all of these things. And it feels less overwhelming when you can name them all in, you know, half an hour and then take them apart in an hour. It's, it's, it made it feel like, oh, these actually, if this is all that the climate denial system can come up with, then we're actually going to be okay. It felt kind of <laughs> nice to sit down and, and take them apart. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's get to that naming. Can what makes up the climate denial ecosystem these days? What is the what are they and, and what are these tactics? Yeah. So I mean, the climate denialists or climate inactivists, it's an amorphous group and the names seem innocuous and a lot of the names change. So it can be really hard to pin down who the main actors are. But I've got like a small cast of characters I can talk about. So the first one is that there are a lot of anti-climate front groups that are loosely tied to the fossil fuel industry. And a lot of the time they're directly funded by the Koch brothers. So the Heartland Institute, ALEC, and Americans for Prosperity are three big ones that people might have heard of for those. Then beyond the different like organizations that you would have, there are also talking heads. They're usually people with some kind of science-y credentials, but they're not people who are climate scientists. So one example I'll give of that is Bjorn Lundberg. So he is, he's a political scientist and economist. He does have a PhD, but he's not a climate scientist and he's published a lot downplaying the risks of climate change. So he has sort of like pseudo credentials that he uses to undermine climate action. Then you have a lot of primarily right-wing politicians who might be funded by fossil fuels or who might just have sort of like ideological reasons that they choose to spread climate disinformation. Then you have social media bots, <laughs> a lot of those, if you're interacting on social media on climate change topics, you're going to confront a lot of those. And then finally, you have real people who have either been victims of disinformation or who may be worried about losing their livelihoods or something like that. Cool. I mean, that's a, those are solid ecosystem there. And I, and I do think that there's a lot to be said about the Bjorn Lombergs of the world who end up becoming these sort of semi-famous figures. And there's another, one of the former members, one of the former founders of Greenpeace, I think, has also sort of taken his brief ability to be say, like, I was a climate activist and sort of transmuted that into becoming a, a climate denialist in a way that justifies it. You know, it's like, I used to care about climate change and therefore I am the voice that you should listen to about how it's not a big deal. Yeah, actually, a documentary about oh, yeah, that. <laughs> We're both thinking the same thing, Kristen. <laughs> we just watched this Michael Moore documentary, Planet of the Humans. It's maybe the worst documentary I've ever seen. It wouldn't, they, right? It's so bad. It's so bad. And the whole thing is framed at the beginning by the host saying, Oh, I care about the planet. And that's why I've made this documentary shutting down every solution from 2008 
<laughs> that is totally different now. And it's, and then I'm not going to offer any solutions of my own. And, it, but because I'm a climate, you know, savior, you should listen to me. And it's like targeting people in such a horrible way. And you just see stuff like this all the time. Oh, no, I know. We have an entire episode of us yelling about that, about when it came out like a year ago. It was awful. And, and ultimately, like, you know, it comes, what, the solutions come down to like population growth? Like, oh, great, you're Malthusian. Thanks a lot. You... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, this can't go anywhere bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. N yeah. We're concerned that the solar industry might have connections to corporations, but, you know, limiting population, there's no instances where that's gone negatively whatsoever. <laughs> I we, we watched this episode or this documentary right after filming our episodes on climate denial. And not that anyone should ever watch this horrible, awful documentary. It's not even bad in a fun way to watch. It's just awful. And so, <laughs> but it really is a great example of all of the different ways that climate denial is existing in our world today. And so if anyone really wanted to torture themselves and have a very brief two hour experience of climate denial on steroids, I mean, you know, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, truly, truly bad. But I do think you're, you're right. It does get a little bit at some of these different tactics that are currently being used. So I wonder if you can dive into a little bit about the the ways in which these climate denialists use and what tactics they're using to sort of pick away at the consensus that climate change is both real and something that we should and must tackle. Yeah. So, I mean, the old school form of climate denial is outright denial. It's either denying the science or denying, you know, that we know enough about the science or denying that climate change is even happening. So that is not very common anymore. It, it does exist, but most of the people who are outright climate deniers are like on the fringes. They don't have very much support. Uh, most people believe that climate change is real and human caused. So that's a great success for that. Um, but outright denial has been replaced by a couple of different tactics. So there's deflection, division, delay, and doomerism. And I can talk more about any of those if you like, or all of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of them would be great. I think it's great to, you know, name them, but then also define them. Because I think if we're going to, I imagine the next step in the conversation we'll get to is sort of how to respond to them. And I think probably you respond to them each differently, you know, depending on, on how it is. So yeah, if you want to get dive into each of those, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. So um, deflection is the first one, and it's fairly straightforward. It is deflecting blame for the impacts of climate change to other causes. One of the most famous examples of this is when there, the California wildfires were ongoing, and Trump said that it was because they were raking the forests. Like, they usually these deflection campaigns are pulling from like morsels of truth and using that to to claim that climate change isn't happening or that the impacts of climate change are caused by something else. So deflection campaigns, they often use front groups that present themselves as grassroots efforts. And the, another common tactic that they'll use is promoting alternatives that push costs onto individuals or the government. So an example that we covered in our episode is the quote, crying Indian ad, ab and litter, right? It's a fairly famous ad campaign that was essentially trying to tackle the problem of highway litter through promoting personal responsibility rather than supporting bottle bills, which were being pushed at the time. And the beverage industry won that fight in a lot of places. So those kinds of things are happening in climate change today. 
The next one is division. And so the aim of division fairly straightforwardly as well is to divide the climate community or to divide climate activists from other, other people who care about climate change, but are maybe not as active in, in doing so. So dividers will use wedge strategies to sow division and discourse within the climate community. And by sowing that internal division, their aim is to distract, to preoccupy, to disable the movement, to prevent it basically from achieving its objectives. One point of optimism on this is that climate change used to be a wedge issue on its own, and now it's not anymore. So, you know, they have to take an additional step in order to divide people on climate change because the vast majority of people do believe that it's real human cause and requires some solutions. Climate deniers now have taken on a new strategy. So their new strategy, this again, is it looks kind of similar to, to people who are deflecting in that they're trying to frame collective solutions as being bad. So they say, we need to act on climate change for sure, um, but the solutions that climate activists are promoting are just a big government power grab. That's sort of the argument. So if you hear debates on, you know, the war on the car or they'll take away your burgers, those are narratives that dividers promote. It's tricky though, because I, I'm not necessarily opposed to taking away burgers. <laughs> or cars, <laughs> as, long, as long as it's not in an ableist way that <laughs> yeah, exactly. denies transportation to other people. <laughs> yeah, so they do draw on morsels of truth as well, right? That a big portion of the climate movement is talking about the need to move away from animal agriculture. And they take an extreme form of that argument to divide people from something that they would otherwise agree with, which is to take action on climate change. And dividers often seek to polarize the climate community itself by playing up conflict between different prominent climate activists. And they'll often use personal behavior wedges to bait the climate movement into unproductive behavior shaming and identity politics. So one sort of famous example of that is every time there's a focus on Greta Thunberg's personal behavior um, to point to like frame her as extreme, that's a good example of that. Or on the other hand, calling Leonardo DiCaprio or Al Gore hypocrites for doing things that pollute. Those are both versions of that argument. And dividers as well may use professional trolls to amplify a meme on social media, and then they use bots to further amplify it. And then that ultimately will get other people to sort of join in on these kinds of behavior shaming or you know, climate fight conversations. All right, after that, you have delaying. So climate delayers, they basically promote false solutions. So the aim of climate delayers is to play for time. Um, and their strategy aims to put off collective climate action by presenting systemic solutions as a threat. Delayers, uh, in some cases, they'll do this sort of direct, directly by delaying actions that could promote decarbonization. So they could delay renewable energy laws, they could seek surtaxes on selling solar panel back to utility solar panels back to utilities they could argue for repealing renewable energy standards and in some cases they've even tried to ban the sale of teslas so there's some very direct delay tactics that happen but another form of delay is what a book that i read by michael mann called the new climate war he called it crocodile tears which i thought was really good and that consists of overstating the harms of climate solutions like renewable energy, especially for helping the environment. So that Michael Moore documentary is a great example of that. 
But other examples you may have come up against are the sort of wind turbines kill birds example. That's, you know, that's one I've definitely heard from members of my extended family. I'm sure a lot of people have as well. And then ethical oil, that's something that's been used in sort of the Canadian context a lot recently, especially since the war in Ukraine was started. Delayers will also use deceptive facts and bad faith arguments to scare people into thinking climate action will take their jobs. And again, here, there's like a morsel of truth that helps to make that persuasive for people in that decarbonization is going to create a shift in jobs. And so for some people, that might mean that we need reskilling programs or a robust social safety net. But, you know, this is a, a disingenuous use of these arguments, and it sort of ignores the fact that decarbonization is going to create lots of jobs. And then if those arguments don't work, they then claim that climate solutions are not ready yet. So this is, again, the Michael Moore documentary used that, talked about intermittency and sufficient battery capacity. They were using information from like 2010, though, so. <laughs> so old, so old. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I, what I love about some of those last arguments are like the ideas of like, putting it on to other innovations, you know, like I would love the world where people came out against the internet because it was going to take away everyone's jobs. Like <laughs> we've lived, like those of us who lived through sort of the rise of the internet know how much the world changed during that. And, and renewable energy will be a pretty significant shift, but it would not be the same shift as the internet has caused. Like we have lived through a bigger transition in terms of job changing and and then even, and even we're seeing it still ongoing with the automation and the ways things are, auto, are getting automated in the short term or in the, in the medium term in terms of, you know, AI or even just manufacturing that, again, have a significant shift on, on impacts, but because they're not sort of politicized, I'm very interested in the ways in which some things get politicized and some, some things don't. Like mm. there are whole sets of regulations that are just regulations and we accept them. And then a particular one suddenly somehow becomes politics instead of just the rules. Yes. And <laughs> it's such a unique way of politicizing things. Like I think uh, public transportation, I think is one of the biggest examples of this, like mm -hmm. the ways in, you know, how much road building, it's very, very rare to see road building become a really political issue. You see it here in, in Ontario with Highway 413, but other than that, not a common experience, but every single bit of transit improvement somehow becomes a hotbed political issue. And it's so difficult to, to undo that when it becomes, so when something moves into, from the realm of government doing government stuff to politics. Yeah, no transit. Oh my gosh, it takes like 20 years sometimes for new lines to get put in. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we undo them for exclusively political purposes, right? Like it becomes just a political talking point instead of just being like, no, this is infrastructure, right? Like no one's out there arguing that we should have different sewer systems in different ways. People just build the sewers how they work and how they need to work. <laughs> and it's, and yet we, we, we can't seem to break this. But so for those four outlines, I'm curious if you have ways to sort of tackle them and like, as you mentioned, we we are probably in this fear of those listening to the show are more likely to come in come across the delayers than the outright deniers. But I think everyone probably has at least a few deniers in their in their ecosystem in some ways. And so, how do you suggest people address those? How how do you best talk to people who may not or may want to deny climate change in any of these ways? 
Oh, I love this topic. I love it. I think the best way to do it is to meet people where they are. And whenever I'm talking to somebody I don't agree with, I always start with a point where we do agree. And there's always something you can agree on with somebody, right? Whether it's, I used to love walking through this forest and now it's gone. Or wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to sit in traffic for an hour each way, you know? <laughs> and then you can build from there, right? And my favorite thing to do is when people come at me with an example of something that they that is wrong. A really good example of this is the overpopulation argument, right? That's where everybody who really does want the problem to be solved, but they don't understand that the problem is like six people and not six billion people. <laughs> so, so my favorite thing with that argument is, is to say, you know, I meet them where they are. Yes, there are too many people to sustain the current way that the system works. However, if we changed the way that the system works, then we actually, we don't, there aren't too many people. There just aren't, you know? And so that I have found a lot of success with in changing the minds of people who are walking around saying, well, there's just too many people. And it's just, I don't know, for me, it's just meet people where they are. Don't make them feel like you're about to tell them they're, they're stupid and wrong. And ask them questions, right? Well, what about this? What if we changed our food supply system so that we weren't shipping tomatoes from, you know, across the world to feed people blasting emissions into the air? What about that? What if we had sustainable farming practices where like the last person I talked to about this has a family member who has a farm that they run very sustainably. I'm like, well, great. What if everyone ran their farm like your family member? And we had a really cool dialogue about that. Yeah. I think I can also say, like, try to figure out when you're engaging with somebody who's saying some climate denial -y things, are they somebody who's perpetrating climate denial or are they somebody who's been a victim of climate denial misinformation? And if it's that, that second category, then you can have the kinds of meaningful conversations that Kyla's talking about. If it's the first category, you are probably wasting your time. So, you know, try not to spend too much time on, on those kinds of people. Learn to recognize bots on social media and do report them. And then with everybody else, be constructive, engage meaningfully. Also avoid wedge strategies like behavior shaming, right? Like these, these ideas of like no fly pledges, of calling out people for not being perfect, you know, on, on climate issues. They can distract from systemic solutions and they can strengthen the personal responsibility climate frame that actually makes it really hard for us to get meaningful climate action done. So I would focus on always pivoting back to collective action when you're talking about climate change. If somebody talks about like how there's plastic in your clothes, say, oh yeah, wouldn't it be good if we addressed fast fashion? You know, things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like the... I love that idea of always trying to work back into people's presuppositions or I'm missing a word. It's a philosophy word I'm missing here for arguments. What's the word I'm looking for? It's like presupposition, but not exactly. So it even starts with a P. I know it does. <laughs> not just their priors. <laughs> like, like priors, but another word, right? Like it's like prior thoughts. What's the word I'm looking for? Pre or maybe I'll search. Sorry, I'm just like Googling precepts. Yeah, do your thing. I'm thinking Priest. just biases, just general biases. Yeah. yeah, but what I love about 
what you're doing is you're trying to go back into into the person you're talking with is sort of premise is for their arguments and I find it so helpful often if you can work back until you have a shared premise and it takes some time. And it honestly ends up being asking them questions more often than you saying things. Like for me, I end up being like, okay, so this is where I think, and this is why I think that you think that, okay, so why do you think that? And you can just slowly work back into thought process until you get to a shared premise. And sometimes you have to go pretty far back. Sometimes you're back at the world should continue to exist. And then you can both agree on that and then build back forward a little bit. But I do think that more often than not, convincing someone of something comes from understanding their premises and talking about and asking them questions almost certainly more than you giving them new information. It's very rare people are going to change their mind with new information if you aren't addressing where your shared premises no longer become shared. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to do because you get to learn something about somebody that you probably like. I don't know, maybe I'm an optimist, but I very <laughs> rarely come across people where if I speak to them for more than five minutes, I don't like them. You know, everyone has their quirks and everyone is a flawed person. And ultimately, everyone's just walking through the world trying to do their best. Even the people who are working for the Heartland Institute and spreading misinformation, like they're just existing in this world, trying to live their best life. And at some point, everybody wants the same things, which is, of course, the world should keep spinning, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, like finding that shared that shared space. And when, yeah. when you're asking people questions and listening to their answers, they want to engage with you. Yeah, and I'll also say that one climate denial strategy we haven't really talked about that I think you can especially engage with is doomism, right? And I think doomism is essentially the idea that climate change is a lost cause. And so we should just give up, like roll over and die, basically. And it's something that a lot of people who in general want to take climate action uh, may espouse because they feel really disempowered. And so I think when you're engaging with somebody who feels like it's too late to act, you can do a couple of things. One is to really emphasize not the urgency for sure, but also the agency that we have when we're talking about climate change. So you can emphasize things like every bit of carbon that we avoid burning prevents additional damage. We're saving lives every time, you know, just switching the framing rather than we've already gone so far, you know, we can save lives with every, every like gigaton of carbon we keep out of the atmosphere. Um, and, and also just highlighting that we are making progress, right? That's something that I think I did not expect when we, when we did our climate denial series, but I actually ended up being fairly optimistic because the truth is that we've won phase one of the climate fight. Phase two is about what kind of action we take, and we're still fighting that one, but we've already won the war to, uh, to get everybody mostly on board with the idea that climate change is real and it requires action. So there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've like even 10 years ago that was not a guarantee and so we've seen some significant advancement in in that most most definitely. And you mentioned there that that was something you surprised you. And so as we sort of come moving towards the towards the end of this interview, I wonder if there's anything else that sort of that you learned during your research that that you surprised you or that you're like, man, everyone should know this. This has nothing to do with climate denial, but <laughs> 
the tobacco industry is the reason that we have flame retardant furniture. And that's the one I was thinking of. It's, (laughs) it's just a perfect example of an industry fighting back and winning in the most bizarre way. So Kristen, you were telling me the story of how they tried to make cigarettes safer because people kept falling asleep on the couch and their house kept catching fire. And instead of cigarettes becoming safer, they made the furniture industry have flame retardant furniture, which is wild. <laughs> like The furniture industry was not ready to combat that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we forget about the tobacco industry these days, but it was a good reminder that they are exactly as evil as I thought. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, and there's so much, there's some really good, I think it's a documentary and some other really good examples of how much the climate denial folks learned from the tobacco folks and even some of the same people. Like there are people who are now anti-climate who just moved from tobacco to climate change. Totally. And it's yeah. like, just like, I'm a scientist for hire. I'll say whatever you want. Industry can just get me the right stuff and I'll go do it. And they were a huge, huge part of the early stages of climate denial, which was just taking disinformation from tobacco and shifting it over, which is honestly mind boggling. Yeah. And it's really interesting to compare the tobacco denial or not denial, but the, yeah, the t- tobacco misinformation industry with the climate denial industry, because I mean, we won that one too. Really, like tobacco's not- <laughs> no tobacco's not going anywhere, sure, right? But it's also, I mean, people don't smoke. I, when was the last time I was in a car where somebody was smoking, right? As opposed to when I was a kid and everyone who was an adult smoked in the car with me. <laughs> All right, I won't sound really old by getting on the youths and their vapes, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like less of an issue now than it was when people were just smoking straight cigarettes, and I feel like. Climate denial is going to go that that way too. It's never going to fully disappear. It won't because, at least not in our lifetimes, because the the fossil fuel industry is just too big and it's too ingrained. And I mean, I'd love to be wrong on that. Prove me wrong. But if flat earthers are still around, yeah, climate deniers will be around. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also like in a way where if flat earthers ran the world, we would have no aviation industry. (laughs) And that's just not where we're at. And that's how I look at like, the climate movement moving forward. It's like, you know, it's not going to go anywhere with, there's always going to be somebody there saying nonsense, but I have faith that most people can see through that if they have the tools. Yeah, for sure. And I do wonder, and where I think I imagine you could come up with a fair number of examples already about like what the vape pens of, of the climate denial is, right? Like, and that's where you get the delayers. That's where you get some of these other things. People being like, oh, yeah, climate change exists, but you can still smoke, but just through this other thing. And oh, yeah, tobacco, you know, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like there's there's definitely going to be a lot of that, too. Right. That mm-hmm. sort of comes out from the, the it's ultimately the goal is still denial, but it comes at a secondary angle of it. And I think there there are examples of it probably already. So. For folks who have listened to you and want to to engage and learn more about pullback and learn more about pullback and listen to y'all, how can they do that? Well, they can find us anywhere podcasts are played. We're on we're on all the platforms. We have I think we just published episode ninety one, and we we have a lot of different things that people can engage with that 
we get a lot of really positive feedback on. And if it's interesting because one of our least favorite episodes was the avocado episode, just because it was kind of boring. And it's also <laughs> one of the ones that I got the most positive feedback about from people who had never listened to the show before that were like, oh, interesting, avocados. It's a topic that people know is is interesting, but they don't know where to find more. So if that's your jam, you know, pull back podcast. <laughs> Amazing. And I'm curious whether or not the avocados was about whether I was or bad or whether or not us youths are not able to form houses because we have so much avocado toast. Oh, yeah. If we stopped buying avocado toast, then tomorrow we could all buy houses. Obviously. Oh, great. Have, right. Fantastic. Just do the math. Just do the math. I just do no, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the cartels that I didn't really understand. It's like <laughs> avocado cartels, really? And yes. <laughs> yeah, that episode was mostly about drug cartels. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, there you go. Check out the avocado episode. I mean, I just recently learned that most of the cranberry industry is run by a co-op. Which I was like, oh. it's the, which is like the reverse of the cartels. I had oh, a very negative so understanding nice. of ocean spray, but in fact, it's actually a co-op run by cranberry farmers. <laughs> and it's, I love that. Uh, that's great. I had, yeah, it was like reverse. I was like, oh, that's way better than I thought it was. Here I was judging y'all. But amazing. Well, thank you both so much for being here. It's our tradition to give our guests sort of the last word before it goes to music break. And so I'll throw to you in half a second to, to give a last word to folks. But I just want to say thank you so much to Kyla Hewson and Kristen Pugh, who are with the Pullback Podcast, which you can find anywhere podcasts can be found. Thanks again. And yeah, any last thoughts? Thank you for having us. And if listeners are interested in starting with our show, don't start with the avocado episode. Start with a fun one like eating insects or the cruise ship industry or pets. And I name those because those are the ones that I did. <laughs> Kristen's are fun too, though. I'm sorry, Kristen. It did sound like I was like. <laughs> no, that was very nice. My last word was going to be Exxon promoted the plastic bag. <laughs> yes. And, all, and recycling. All of recycling is a lie. <laughs> yeah, and your carbon footprint, I found out in our climate denial episode, so it's very new information for me, that your carbon footprint is from BP oil. <laughs> the whole idea, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's so evil because it's such a powerful tool and it's so useful, and yet it perpetuates the idea that only the individual can make change instead of the actual answer, which is collective action. <laughs>